HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Austin East Ciders. For more information, visit their website at austineastciders.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. afternoon and welcome back to eating matters where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us i'm your host jenna Liu, and we're broadcasting live from bushwick brooklyn on heritage radio network today is our very first episode since the summer break and we're so excited to get underway um, with this season as there will surely be lots of exciting food industry and policy news coming down the pike And we're going to kick off the season by talking to an awesome organization called Drive Change, which operates at the intersection of criminal justice and food system reform. Joining me today to do so is Jordan Lexton, co-founder of Drive Change, and Fred Coleman, a former Drive Change fellow. But before we speak with them, Taylor Lanzette, my associate producer, is in the studio with me today to talk through some of the biggest food news uh, from the past couple of weeks. Hi, Taylor. Hey, Jenna. Welcome back. So excited to be here. Great. <laughs> what's What's been happening since we've been on break? Yeah. So first up, I figured we could ease back into the news with uh, your classic weather update. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the drought hit New York pretty hard this year. Um, we're talking about 26 counties across the state that have been marked as natural disaster areas, Oy. which makes them eligible for emergency farm service agency loans. Um, I mean, I feel like it hasn't rained a lot this summer. My yeah. own sort of anecdotal uh, beach time. Beach. Time. <laughs> uh, but what does this what does this really mean in terms of rainfall? It, yeah, it ranges from deficits of six to nine inches, with some farmers having seen crop crop loss up to about fifty percent. So pretty pretty sizable. Yeah. Um, Yikes. Yeah. What else? So. What else? All right. Okay. Yeah. That, Weather update done. done. Depressing. <laughs> well, our favorite topic, SNAP, has yes. had some summer fun. All right. As we reported last season, there are a lot of efforts in motion to get online retailers set up to accept SNAP. So uh, Senator Cory Booker and Representative Tim Ryan and Barbara Lee are collectively urging the USDA to catch up and move its timeline to get programs piloted uh, and up and running. They have also asked the USDA to process SNAP benefits at point of purchase online, not when the food is delivered. Hmm. That's interesting. I think this is great. Uh, I love Senator Booker. Yeah. Not just because of his convention speech and (laughs) awesome food work, but just because he's an amazing person. Um, But for our listeners, I just wanted to remind everybody the 2014 Farm Bill allocated resources to make sure the USDA get these pilot programs up and running. Yeah, and the USDA is going to request that volunteer retailers this fall um, sort of, you know, show themselves and that by the end of the year, they should have some retailers selected. Yeah. And as we talked about last season, like Thrive Market, based in L.A., is one of the major ones that they're thinking about. Mm -hmm. It should be pretty exciting. I know, I know. And I I, I don't know why a retailer wouldn't want to do this. I think it would be um, a win-win for everybody involved. So in breaking news... Breaking news! (laughs) Flashing across your... No your, strain. Yeah. Your mind. <laughs> we'll work on that next yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Monsanto announced today that it will uh, 
be acquiring its rival Bayer, uh, or will be acquired by its rival Bayer in the largest takeover so far this year. Um, to seal the deal, Bayer has pumped even more money into this. Um, you know, Monsanto is the USC giant, mm-hmm. and so they're valuing it at $66 billion, including Monsanto's debt. Wow. So this is the third time Bayer has upped the ante, I guess, uh, yeah. third time's a charm. <laughs> um, but this takeover is going to, if it goes forward, create a vast conglomerate, to say the least, spanning pharmaceuticals, health products, pesticides... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see how the farming landscape looks after this. I know. And of course, this is mending, uh, pending myriad antitrust regulatory yeah. hurdles. Like, like a long haul there yeah. for them, I hope, I guess. I hope it, it so seems, too. it seems, um, this is huge. And so we'll be, um, we'll be reporting on more of this as it kind of unfolds. But yeah, it's as of now moving forward. Yeah. So, um, Last week, uh, the USDA announced that U.S. households experiencing food insecurity dropped from 14% in 2014 to 12.7% in 2015. So this is actually quite a bit. Um, Yeah. And it's still higher than pre-recession numbers of 11.1%, but it's a downward trend that hopefully we'll see continuing. Yeah, this was this was really big news uh, when it came out last week, and it was good news, obviously. Um, But since maybe my role today is going to be to put a damper on Mm. all of the good news coming down. I also think it's um, worth mentioning that there was a article that that came out um, recently in the guardian that talks about um, kids in poor communities who are hungry enough to trade sex, um, sell drugs, join gangs for food. Um, And it, it was just really depressing. So, um, the researcher, Susan Popkin, who's a senior fellow at the Urban Institute, led this qualitative study and interviewed 200 kids in urban and rural areas across the country. And, you know, one of the things she said was that these teens overwhelmingly wanted to earn money in other ways for food, but there weren't a lot of options, other options available. Wow. Yeah, I, I'll have to check that one out. I mean, clearly the 12.7% food insecurity still means we have a lot of work to do. Um, and, you know, those numbers are even higher sometimes for children or children who are living on their own. Yeah. And I just think that, um, you know, we throw a lot of numbers out there and we're talking about food insecurity and these issues. And um, one of the reasons I think it's important to mention this today is because it really helps, like, humanize these mm-hmm. numbers and really explain kind of how dire the situation can be for yeah. a lot of people. Absolutely. Um, And speaking of teens, researchers from UPenn conducted a follow-up study from earlier this year regarding soft drink consumption and warning labels. So in a survey of more than 2,000 teens, they found that 8 to 16% were likely to not choose a sugar-sweetened beverage if it came with a label showing possibilities of obesity, diabetes, or tooth decay. 8 to 16% doesn't seem like a huge number. Right. I mean, I was, like, excited about this, but then I was like, but wait. Yeah. But so 62% of teens who participated in this survey said that they would support a policy of putting warning labels on sugary drinks. Okay, so... That's huge. That's 62%. Huge. Yeah, if they vote. <laughs> if they vote. <laughs> if, they, if we actually can, like, you know, Get them galvanize to the them to, to the polls. <laughs> um, staying on this topic... Uh, uh, oh, yeah, so... Um, Just as a reminder, sorry, there have been a few bills introduced this past year um, in California, Baltimore, and New York that would require such a warning label to be placed on drinks, sugary drinks. Um, So far, San Francisco is the only city to have passed this type Mm. of legislation, which went into effect this summer. Yeah. And on sort of an additional note on that, uh, the former NYC Mayor Michael Bloomberg mm-hmm. has given $1.5 million to support the proposed ballots in SF and Oakland for the one cent per ounce tax on sugary beverages. Yeah, I'm obviously super biased um, on this one, as I'm going to say he's always been ahead of the curve on yeah. issues like this. Um, but, you know, it's really important for... Uh, the like pro-tax um, proponents to have an advocate like Bloomberg in their corner. Yeah, and I mean, you know, someone to the soda lobby has a lot of money, so having someone push against that in a meaningful way. Um, and I would really love to see a multi-tiered effort with a label and a tax, which is not surprising because yeah. I love more regulations for soda business. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last up. Uh, um, 
I just have to mention this because you know how much I also love councils. Mm, um, <laughs> Secretary of Ag Tom Vilsack, uh, most recently famed for being a potential Hillary Veep pick. <laughs> um, of course, he did not get that. <laughs> um, no. But he has been um, sort of advertising that the next administration um, should essentially make a White House Food Council. Um, so he's, you know, his advice here is that this group would bring together. Um, people and sort of, you know, topical areas from ag to tech to access. This would be, I mean, a lot of people have talked about this maybe as like a pie in the sky, but it would it would be such an awesome win for the food community if this got actioned. Yeah. And Jenna, just think maybe they will need people who can report food news I think, and we can just tap ourselves. I think we should definitely tap ourselves. Um, <laughs> consider ourselves tapped <laughs> for such a position i you know that obviously i mean secretary vilsack if you're listening please consider us for the white house food policy council we can do it we could do it yeah okay all right that's it for our food news today um if you have any suggestions for stories that you would like to hear us to reporting on or questions and thoughts on the ones today be sure to tweet at us at eat matters hrn Okay, turning to our story at hand for the day, we are going to be talking to Drive Change. And I want to welcome to the show Executive Director Jordan Lexton and Fred Coleman, a former Drive Change fellow. Jordan and Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thank really you. happy to be here. Um, Jordan, let's start, let's start with you. What is Drive Change exactly? Drive Change uh, uses the food truck industry mm-hmm. to run a fellowship for young people who are coming home from jail and prison. Mm-hmm. So I was a teacher on Rikers Island for a number of years and developed a concept where we could use the food truck business as a tool to support employment needs and skill training development, community building for young people who are coming home. Um, Can you give us a brief uh, macro and micro understanding of our criminal justice system in New York just to help us set the stage? Yeah, super easy to do that. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) Just, you know, like a soundbite. You know, um, Drive Change was founded because uh, of pervasive injustice that I witnessed firsthand from working inside of Rikers and working particularly with young people. Uh, New York is actually one of two states that automatically treats a 16-year-old like they're an adult in the criminal wow. justice system. So uh, witnessing firsthand extremely abusive conditions, um, the the very real existence of uh, racial injustice, of issues around um, a, a class and, and disparity, uh, people who just don't have access to opportunity mm-hmm. getting wrapped up into our criminal justice system and the very long lasting consequences that being even just arrested can have. Uh, so really witnessing again how young people who, because of this issue in New York with the age, are leaving with felonies as opposed to juvenile adjudications, which mm-hmm. means they have open, not closed records. Right. So imagine coming home, you're 16, 17, 18 years old, thinking about your future, and the road ahead just looks to be paved with these dead ends, these red lights, these mm-hmm. stop signs. You can't find work. You can't go back to school. There are issues around even public housing where you can live. Uh, And so the likelihood that somebody is going to get re-wrapped up in the system at that age is almost 70%. Um, And we're talking about a system where it costs close to $200,000 a year to incarcerate a single individual inside of Rikers Island. So clearly, uh, this is a system that needs a desperate, desperate overhaul. Right. And how, in your opinion, is the industrial food system similar to the prison industrial complex? You you mentioned racial injustice as, mm-hmm. as a theme. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, um, uh, I'm i a white person who grew up in New York City uh, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan um, and who... Not an underserved neighborhood. No, uh, certainly not. Um, My life, there were open doors. There was constant uh, access to opportunity. Um, And uh, from an early age, it was kind of uh, clear to me that 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 
pathway of what is possible was very broad. Mm -hmm. um, and then being a teacher inside of Rikers, uh, 90, actually 95% of the population of young adults who are actually incarcerated or young people of color, mm -hmm. uh, that is not that... The, 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 it is a systemic, ra systemic racist system that creates those kinds of disparities. Uh, it is not just class. It is not just the fact that somebody who is, mind you, Rikers Island is mostly people just detained. Mm -hmm. So not guilty of anything. Right. They can only, they're there mostly because they cannot afford bail. Yet a person of the same economic class who goes through the system, mm -hmm. if one person is a person of color and one person is a white person, the conditions and the outcome is usually worse for a young person of color still, regardless, even if it's the same crime, same uh, kind of pathway. So we're talking about a inherently unjust system that exists uh, within the criminal justice system. And you asked about food. Yeah, food. how it relates to food. Yeah, I mean, you know, so my background is really truly in the, in the, uh, in the education space in the criminal justice space mm -hmm. but in building drive change and at drive change uh we actually the model is that we are we own and operate our own food truck business which mm -hmm. is called snow day and snow day actually won the vendi award for best food truck in new york city last Congratulations. year Congratulations! thank you and our our model has been all about uh being able to use food from local farms as the uh as the platform for our seasonal menu mm -hmm. uh and so I've gotten really exposed to food and food justice through the process of building and starting Drive Change and through uh, the expertise and experience of people like our culinary arts director, Jared Spafford, who has very clearly for his whole life been dedicated to the same idea that is uh, an issue with race and injustice in the criminal justice system, which is about access, right? Access and opportunity, exposure, the ability for these things to be uh, to be things that are truly um, open and uh, truly able for people of any background to be able to obtain. Mm -hmm. And our current our current model of society creates restrictions specifically uh, to to people of color and specifically around race. Uh, can, um, if yeah. I may. Absolutely. Right? If I you look at the situations like, okay, most of the people who go to prison come from like really poor neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. You look at most of the poor neighborhoods, it's really crappy food, right? Yeah. Really crappy. So if you take a whole bunch of like really, uh, I'll choose my words carefully because <laughs> Don't, I'm not sure if we can curse on radio, but um, <laughs> like if you take a whole bunch of like negative things right. and pump negative things into a person, you yeah. get a negative person. You get a negative outcome. Then yeah. you become, then you lock this negativity away. Yeah. Let this negativity out and give this negativity no opportunity yeah. to become positive. What do you get? Can you tell us, um, Fred, about your own experience and, uh, you know, with drive change specifically and, and where you are now? I mean, like, uh, if I had to give, like, a real, like, one word, it, drive change was exhausting. Trying yeah. to, like, broaden people's horizon, shed some light on uh, uh, something people didn't know was even going on. I mean... Before drive change, I kind of didn't even know myself. Like I didn't know that, you know, I was pushed into this. Certain like I systems said, yeah, and like, structures. Yeah. And then Jordan, you know, being Jordan educator, mm -hmm. she, she enlightened me on a lot of that stuff. So to try to teach people, like the same thing Jordan showed me, is exhausting. And then, I mean, the food did make it a lot easier. So what were some of the things that you did in the program that that, were, that you received training on? Oh, man, everything. I, I have very rarely written essays. I've very rarely done... I, I've, a lot of the food I've worked with was unbelievable. Um, so there's culinary training. Yeah, it's culinary training. Uh, Jordan really... Was there, like, hospitality and stuff? There's, there's a lot of that, too. But Jordan was a lot, like, pushy with making <laughs> me do paperwork and other stuff like that. So, yeah. like, I did a lot of that. I did a lot of PR stuff. Um, I mean, I wasn't a real talkative guy. Like, uh, I could, mm -hmm. you know, but 
I'm 6'3", 200-something pounds. I I didn't really have to say much to people. (laughs) And Jordan kind of, like, pushed me out there and was like, hey, uh, go tell people what we do. And it's like, oh, man, I'm really good at that. Yeah. I I can really tell people some stuff. So I became a little bit more vocal and, you know. And confident? Definitely confident. I smile a lot more now also, you know. I didn't know. I didn't know. I, I had a really nice smile. You yeah. do. You do. Well, that's a you. fact. Yeah. And I, I think that's uh, amazing. So it seems like the program has had such a positive effect on you. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, now where I work at, and like the two places I work at, really just like really focus on great food. Uh, and where is that? Um, I work at the Union Square, uh, 14th Street Market, mm-hmm, the um, Green Market. and uh, Reynards, uh, which is the White Hotel. Yep. Um, North 11th Street. So that, so for all of our non-New York-based listeners, that is a very fancy hotel in Williamsburg from the uh, restaurateur Andrew Tarlow, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the chefs there are kind of like their culinary arts director at um, Drive Change. Uh, they're really, like, really overly passionate about the food that they put out and how it looks. And yeah. when it like, you should see, like, when the food comes in, how they're, like, looking at it and touching it. And yeah. It's, like, it's unbelievable. So to see something like that and be around those type of people, it wouldn't be possible if I didn't, like, get the knowledge or education I did from working with Drive Change. Um, so, Jordan, ever since starting the... Uh, program. When, when was Drive Change founded, by the way? Uh, 2014. So we've worked, uh, the model is a one-year fellowship. Uh-huh. Um, it works with about 16 young people per year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and yeah, like Fred and, and, and you just talked about, we're using the business as the platform for all the training that we're doing. Mm-hmm. So all of our fellows are prepping all of our food from scratch. Mm-hmm. They're uh, then selling food off the truck to, um, to our consumers. And in that moment, really, we encourage everybody to be uh, engaging in a way that creates a human connection, Mm -hmm. uh, recognizing that through point of sale and through hospitality, we can uh, eradicate some of the stigma that comes with uh, incarceration and simultaneously raise awareness about injustice inside of the system. Um, And then we do professional development every week of about uh, six hours a week, again, teaching these transferable skills and um, using, using the business as the tool. So we started in 2000 14 we've worked so far with about 19 young people total why food specifically um you know as the industry that you chose um to really kind of uh drive why not food i mean (laughs) that's a very good question no that's a great question how do you get people talking how do you get people around together thinking about anything yeah you can bring enemies together with food like Food, so yeah. the, the, because it brings people together. Yeah, you know, think about like Thanksgiving alone. Like everybody from everywhere, from like family members you haven't seen from a while, uh, yeah. years, come over to sit down at grandmother's house, and everybody's sitting there. You may no hate, matter what's going on yeah, in that family. You may hate your uncle, <laughs> yeah. but you're like sitting across the table from him, and you're like, wow, we both haven't had her food in yeah. ever. And it's like, we're going to eat, we're going to try to get along, and then after you're about, like, on your third plate, you're kind of too tired to fight. So you just smile at each other. You just enjoy yeah, each other. Too much yeah. turkey. Yeah, no, I think so. that's really right. I mean, I think that, like, food is the – it's an, it's a complete human language, you know? And it, and it is something – like, the power of a shared, shared meal is a really incredible thing. Uh, yeah. Specifically, you know, when I was teaching on Rikers, one of the only area classrooms and areas where people were happy, focused, disciplined, excited was a culinary arts class. Right. Um, so I started to think about how like the the way in which a food business uh, really does teach these both soft and hard skills to people but it's you know you need to be a part of it you need to be a team player you need to uh, be able to be in the high intensity of mm-hmm. a kitchen space and those, yeah. those kind of problem solving skills are skills that you're going to take with you throughout the rest of your life um, also you know yeah food I mean it's just it, it is about that human connection 
It is about the reality that we've been able to use our great food as a platform for dialogue around some of these conversations that deal with the intersectionality between race and class, food justice and the criminal justice system. And that's something that, you know, if the model was not centered around uh, something like a shared meal, it just wouldn't have happened. Right. I love what you said, Fred, why not food? It's it's something that resonates with me personally because, um, you know, for instance, when I tell people I have a radio show and it's on food policy, I think most people think that's a very niche um, topic. But it's not is sort of the point of the show, right? Food affects us every single day, several times a day. Um, and you know, not just food, but our food environment. And, uh, so that I, so anyways, that's to say, I love that comment. I, and I'm going to use it. (laughs) Why not food? When people ask me, um, that, okay. So we're going to take a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the role of policy and what drive change is doing to advocate for criminal justice reform while championing food system access and sustainability. And this one is called Walking Like a Cowboy by Star. We'll be right back. Are you an East Sider? We live on the east side of town. Our shipping container studios are at Roberta's in Bushwick, across the East River, separating New York City and Brooklyn. In all my recent travels, it seems like the east side of town is the cool side of town in cities across the country. East Nashville is full of musicians and weird bars. The up-and-coming neighborhood around 8th Street in D.C., on the east side, is overflowing with exciting food and nightlife. The best hidden spots and funky artists in New Orleans are in the Maronian Bywater, which, yup, is the east side of town. So, as east siders, we love drinks that represent our values. And nothing is more fitting than a cool, refreshing can of Austin East Ciders. As the name implies, it is cider, and it's handmade on, you guessed it, the east side of Austin, Texas, using bittersweet and bittersharp cider apples. Cider apples are full of tannins, adding astringency and complexity of flavor to every sip. Austin East Ciders uses a mixture of European and Pacific Northwest apples to achieve ultimate flavor. Austin East Ciders is available in a few different variations, including original flavor, Texas honey, and two new additions, hopped and pineapple. Here at Heritage Radio, we love Austin East Ciders with some ribs, pulled pork, and even pizza especially Roberta's Pizza. You can find out more at austineastsiders.com and remember to hashtag Eastsiders to show your Eastside pride. You can also find Austin Eastsiders on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we are speaking with Jordan Lexton and Frederick Coleman of the nonprofit organization Drive Change. Um, Jordan, does Drive Change advocate for specific policy changes? And if so, which ones? Specifically, we are focused on a campaign to raise the age of adult criminal responsibility in New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's something that has been brought to the floor in the past two years, but actually not passed. Uh, New York is, as I said at the beginning of the show... Uh, We use 16 as the benchmark for adult responsibility, which just has ridiculous consequences for young people. Um, And New York is actually one of only two states, North Carolina being the other, where the age is set that low. Uh, So that is very much a focus for the work that we're doing at Drive Change. Uh, We're right now involved also in a campaign to close Rikers Island. Really? Um, Yeah, it's being uh, spearheaded by a remarkable organization organization called Just Leadership USA, mm-hmm. uh, founded by Glenn Martin, who is an uh, incredible, incredible advocate for reform. Um, so we're a part of that specific campaign as well. Uh, and, you know, again, thinking, too, about bail reform. Uh, why are people, specific people, being detained when they don't have to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and that the method of how that leads itself into uh, decriminalization of certain of certain crimes. Right. Um, so those are the main and specific policies that we are currently working on. Anything around food advocacy? 
Yeah. So uh, as it as it relates to uh, food access and food justice, we're not right now. There isn't any particular bill or particular uh, policy that we are ho- d- deep diving, honing into to to get behind specifically. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, we are we're thinking more and more about how the mobility of what we do, being that we are a food truck mm-hmm. uh, and have the capacity to get out in the community and get out in lots of different areas, how we can use that mobility to our advantage to get out into neighborhoods and talk about access and ask people, what are your challenges? How, uh, wh- you know, what would get you into a position in place where uh, potentially you could be um, providing more nutritious m- meals for your family? Mm-hmm. Uh, and being able to ask also our city's leaders, how do we create infrastructure that supports that? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that we're working on is building a a food truck commissary that would also be a hub for some of this access point uh, for other food truck businesses and for communities in general. So, so like a communal kitchen where you would um, all food truck operators would be able to prepare. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, like a co-working space for food trucks um, uh, with incubator kitchen space, classroom space for tr- for the trainings that we mm-hmm. do, uh, but also have it be consumer facing and have it be a space where the possibility for distribution and for food access, you know, kind of creating this charter of like what kind of food we would also want uh, to encourage businesses to be able to afford so that they can sell to consumers as well. Um, yeah, so that. That shared space and that that food truck commissary is the vision for our growth mm-hmm. at Drive Change. Um, Fred, I want to talk about food access a little bit more, um, and specifically lack lack of healthy food access. Is this something that you have personally experienced? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I grew up well. For the first part of my life, I grew up in like Spanish Harlem, mm-hmm. where like literally steps from like the inner city and you know having seen like seeing people uh, how can I put it like seeing someone in a three piece suit and seeing someone sagging their pants like within footsteps of each other so if I walk uptown obviously I'm going to see someone sagging and dragging their pants or whatever walk towards the city see someone like getting into their Porsche or something like that, you know, and literally, and, and, you're, and you're talking about the di- the, the division, the kind of I yeah, don't know, it's like literally the guy, like literally the borderline of like I would the Upper East Side uh, yeah, and Harlem. So, so now you're you're in this like building with all the same people who are like sagging their pants. This literally was your way. Like, okay, I have to do this. I have to you know fit in with my crowd. Mm-hmm. You know, not knowing like. That's also your crowd. Like, these, we are all human. Right. Right? But then when you start thinking about your food and how you handle food and, like, uh, my mother uh, married my father, which is, he's from South Carolina. Mm-hmm. So he grew up in, like, that time where you were, like, pumped the worst part of the animal. Like, yeah. at, I guess, let's say the worst part because a lot of the, the whole animal was incredibly delicious mm-hmm. but um like he was pumped what is what was called the negative part of the animal like the worst part of the animal and i had to grow up eating that and like what would that be uh, i mean like i said it's all delicious i mean yeah literally <laughs> but like chitlins like uh pig's feet like pig ears okay like then you would never get like Oh, uh, a really good steak, right? Like a pork chop. Or something. Like you don't get yeah. you don't get the best pork chop. If you were getting a pork chop, you were getting like, like I said before about like uh, the supermarkets, like how you look at supermarkets. Like, so, uh, so his influence was from the south. Yeah, and I mean it was all great food, and you know, grandma really did do a great job with it. But then you look at stuff like ramen noodles, mm-hmm. right? Like ramen sucks. Mm-hmm. It's like not good for you at all. It's like 
pump full of. I, I, I was told it had styrofoam in it too. Like I'm not entirely it probably sure. Probably does. Yeah. Like, so now it's like you grow up and you're eating like ramen noodles. Like, do you think that's? I mean, you mentioned the kind of societal pressure a little bit earlier. Do you think part of that is um, like what what your friends are eating? And so yeah, I mean, that- literally everyone. Hey, dude, you're coming over. We're hanging out. Hey, I'm about to make me a ramen noodle. Do you want one? Right. So it's <laughs> of like, of course, I want a ramen noodle. Why not? <laughs> well, I mean, in all fairness, ramen's really good. Also, tasty. Maybe not see, that's good the, for you. See, but that's the thing, though. Yeah. Like, if if you know, before I start like blasting a whole bunch of like companies and organizations <laughs> with really crappy food, the point of it, it's supposed to taste good. You're right. right. It's supposed to right. taste yeah. like. But then you think about, right, the... You put enough sodium in anything and you can... Yeah, I mean, then you think about the, like, the problems that you have later on in life and you don't relate it back to this cheeseburger that you had, you know? Yeah. So it's like, okay, it was delicious, I'm full, I go home, then I have cancer. Uh And then, you know, or you can literally, like, break down to, like, the greatest of products, you know, kick out, you know, maybe a few extra bucks to actually have this great product, you know, and then, you know, feel a little bit better about yourself, you know, feel a little bit, you know, not so worn down and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not have cancer or, <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, like I said, like me going from eating ramen noodles every day to now, I don't even shop at the supermarket. You Where do you shop then? Market. I mean, I get at a the really, green market. I got a really good discount over there. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, and the 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 Union Square Green Market is um, very famous, uh, even to people not in New York, but has a lot of yeah, awesome. Like, options. So, like, literally, like, I can go there, get really good food. I can give my children great food. Yeah. You know, and not have to go, and not have to really think about like, oh, what are the the consequences for them for me giving them this now? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think those points are so important because it is then also about affordability, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who has access to the green markets? Who's able to buy that food for their kids? Like, literally, the people who live in that neighborhood. Like, mm-hmm. I'm in the Bronx now. Like, there's very rarely I see anybody from my neighborhood down at the market or people I know at the market. Yeah. Like, uh, I've had one person in... He was literally just straggling around the yeah. market. Yeah, well, it's a long way away from the Bronx. But you do have things like Hunts Point up in the Bronx. And so it's a question also, too, of, you know, not just physical access, but also like awareness around it. Mm-hmm. You know, where do how, what are the systems in place to be able to help educate people about where they can get food that they can afford that's better for them and better for their kids? But I, I also just really want to touch on what Fred said about the food, like, crappy food tasting good Mm -hmm. that is intentional right Right. like capitalism is wrapped up in this and so when people in poor neighborhoods are being sold food that is literally addictive Mm -hmm. uh and And, affordable and cheap yeah yeah then it continues to create this cycle and problem uh and so it's not just about is this x now accessible but it's about literally like changing people's behaviors which is extremely challenging that was funny because someone came i mean not to like beat on people who drink hennessy but i was told that like hennessy and fried chicken was supposed to be like this like hallucinated thing for black people like it makes black people hallucinate and (laughs) do things they shouldn't do I, I, it was probably an inside joke, but it was funny, and maybe it's true. Who knows? Maybe we should talk to Hennessy and the fried chicken people. Um, I like fried chicken any which way, with <laughs> no matter what. Maybe maybe it's the fried chicken in the neighborhood that we were talking about, but it was it was a great joke. Um, does does Snow Day work in any of these underserved areas, or like you know, do you? Do you park there? Do you have a certain designated location that you go to every uh, week? 
Yeah, so so the answer is that not frequently enough. Uh, right. So one thing that we've tried really hard to do, and this has actually been supported by great partners. So we have partners at uh, the Randalls Island Urban Farm and also the Battery Park Urban Farm who donate produce to, produce to us weekly. Oh, okay. So uh, what partially that allows us to do is keep our prices relatively low. Right. Our average price point on our menu is $7, yeah. which is just not common anywhere, really, especially. Uh, especially if you move within the areas that we tend to vend. Uh, right now, we're parking in Bryant Park on Tuesdays, and we're down the financial district on Thursdays. We're going to be ramping up our schedule come this fall also, too. We're doing a lot of private events as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of being in neighborhoods where access is way more important, part of what we've also flirted with doing and what we want to be able to do and hopefully we'll have the infrastructure to do it is to have a sliding scale menu depending on where we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, be let us be in a position and in a place where people who can afford to pay at a higher value. Do so learning also as well that the money that you, whenever you buy food at Snow Day, that money just recycles back into the organization to subsidize our overall operating costs. So it goes back into programming, back into the work that we're doing, back into supporting uh, the community that we're building. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, putting people in a position where if you can afford to pay for food at a certain level, do so based on your neighborhood based on your yeah. neighborhood and then being able for for us to go into neighborhoods that don't get access to the quality of food that we serve off of so day and to really sell it at a price that is either pay as you can or uh is at a lower a lower rate yeah um and so that's something that our culinary arts director jared is extremely passionate about uh and i i really think that over the course of the next year you'll see a lot more of that from us uh which is very exciting yeah i i love that concept and I just had actually um, one of the co-founders on the show, uh, David Foster of Every Table, which is a new LA-based restaurant chain that does exactly that. They have like a, a fluctuating price stri- pricing strategy that um, varies depending on the neighborhoods that they serve. It's an interesting concept, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it, part of me wonders at the same time, while I think that it's a great concept. The like, the, the the food advocate in me thinks, is it that simple? And should food be cheap? Yeah, right? I th- should good food be cheap? And how does that relate to your suppliers and and, and the supply chain? Yeah, that's and, a great point. And I, I wonder if Fred also has some insight into this. But I know Jared, our culinary arts director, thinks about that all the time because yeah. he believes firmly that uh, you know quality food should be paid for at a. You know, because also uh, we actually were just talking about this before the show, but we we talked about the difference between like farms that are organic or otherwise Mm -hmm. um, and just how expensive it is to become organic certified. And yet these small farms are now getting like pushed out of the market because of the actual like way in which we are marketing organic produce. The the organic designation being. Yeah. uh, Yeah. A little bit hard to attain for some farmers who are already doing those practices. Exactly. And so just recognizing that those farmer, like the sustainability of that chain requires money, right? Right. It requires resources. Mm -hmm. Basically what you're saying is like, well, basically how I look at it is, right, you're not really paying for the food. You're paying for the labor. You're paying for someone to actually put this on your plate. I mean, People go to restaurants, it's an, like, an really? excellent point. Yeah, they go to, like, high-end restaurants, and then they sit down and spend thousands and thousands of dollars on high-priced booze, high-priced meat, whatever. You know, that same meat that's on those, like, restaurant tables could be on your plate, you know? You just do the labor. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and one thing that um, Jared likes to uh, bring up, is people should be able to look their food in the face. I mean, if you actually raised a pig, would you eat a pig? Would you eat a cow if you raised it? Like, so, I mean, I think some that's farmers, what you're paying for. Right, exactly. And some farmers would say, how can you eat something that you don't know how it's raised? You yeah, know, that, right. that you... So, right. so that's what people are really paying for. You're paying for the hard work, blood, sweat, and tears that yep. someone put into this. Yeah. You're not paying for the food. You're paying for that so, to continue to do. Right. So to that end, do you guys have any guidelines around your sourcing um, 
you know, mechanisms uh, do you work with? Like, what do you look for when you are um, looking for producers to, and par- farmers to partner with? Yeah. Equitable suppliers, or we talk to Jared. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so Jared's really in charge of all of our sourcing, and it's it's on. It is, a, but it is about how uh, how food is raised, how food is grown, the, the ethical practices, and the impact on the environment. But then, you know, to, to Fred's point and to your point as well, it is also about you know as much as we can learn about what the labor practices are of a particular mm-hmm. place too. I mean, I think that that is something that is often undervalued in the conversation around food justice is how are, you know, big farms treating their far- their, you know, their people that are working working on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something I think more and more in drive change wants to be also at the forefront of the conversation around what does it mean to be a socially conscious consumer? You right. know, how do we encourage radical transparency yeah. in a way that really gets us into a position and into a place where, you know, again, maybe you don't want to read an essay before you eat every meal. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, I I personally am going to want to support with the money and dollars that I choose to put towards uh, entities, the ones that are thinking about these things and up and acting in a way that is socially responsible. Right. And we have actually seen and this, uh, you know, a rise in popularity of mission based startups right. and also food trucks. Has this affected the business at all in any way over the past few years? Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. I think, so we started, uh, in 2014 and since then we've, we know directly that there are a few other organizations that have, that have started food trucks that have, uh, a mission driven purpose, mm-hmm. be it something that has to do more specifically with food access or has to do with supporting other kinds of marginalized, uh, communities by way of employment, um, or again, running these educational programs as well. And that, you know, is something that we are, uh, just totally encouraging, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about uh, how uh, encouraging beyond the food truck industry, how does does a business in general be a platform for being able to contribute socially? To educate, yeah. Yeah, totally. Definitely. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that we run up against is also recognizing that there are small business owners with real bottom lines and real, uh, you know, they have to make real assessments around the, the, um, the cost and analysis for different things that they choose to invest in and do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a very, very real thing. Uh, however, what we've seen in our operation as well is that, you know, the ability to think about the fabric of your company, uh, a company is a micro culture. It's a micro right. environment. You get to set values for that. And in reality, I think that that's really uh, a, a place for potential reform. Yeah. Um, and so we've seen that the that it's been a benefit for our bottom line to be able to have such clear value and principle going into to what we do. Uh, it gives 100%. us clarity. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I think that we're seeing more and more this um, the the notion that you can do well by doing good in a business, um, you know, take off and be successful, right? You can, you can do both, like be profitable and make big changes, um, on the communities in which you, you are serving. Yeah. And understand, I mean, I say often like, you know, I think social enterprise has gotten pretty trendy and pretty buzzy. And I think we have to be aware of that too. Like, uh, if it's, you mean, or you mean, aware of like the kind of greenwashing effect or if it's just a marketing principle? Yeah, definitely. Um, and just also too, like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely what I mean. Uh, but also then thinking like when I think about it, I, I often say that I want to be in a position or I want us to all be in a place where the phrase social and social enterprise becomes obsolete because every is. business yeah. would be formed with like actual KPIs around social good. Yeah. Uh, and that that is something that I you know hope to be able to be uh, be a part of. Absolutely. Um, all right, we have time for one final question. I want to know what's next for both of you, um, Jordan, or do you, or actually Fred, kick us off. What's what do you have going on? What's next? Yeah, I, I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> I, I'm kind of like like finding my way as of now. I mean, I didn't know I liked food as much until. You know the program. Yeah, and then before I knew it, I'm working in Reno. I didn't, 
you know, maybe maybe I spend a couple of years every night, you know, hand, enhancing my skills, you know, getting to work around some of the greatest cooks, you know, New York has to offer, you know, uh, and see where it goes from there. Right now, I'm doing the parenting thing, raising yeah. the kids, and awesome. Yeah, that's pretty much right now for me and and infusing them help helping to develop their culinary palates as well i assume oh, or man. do you cook I, for them i cook for, they, right now my two oldest they're pretty much cooking for themselves they, oh my gosh they won't leave me alone like they're in the kitchen with me like oh yeah can i can i do this can i do this and then you really have to like find out which things they can do safely yeah like, so, <laughs> so it's like huh mash these potatoes yeah like, add this in there and Oh, these are the best potatoes ever. Oh, you did such a good job. So it's like... That's amazing yeah. and um, such an important thing to do, I think, with your kids. And I love that. Um, Jordan, what's next for Drive Change? Any plans for expansion, growth? Yeah, we want to build this uh, commissary. So we got to raise some money. Uh, we got to be in a position yeah. where we can potentially lease. Uh, we're looking for like a around a 30,000 square foot space. So not not, not small at all. Yeah. Uh, and really building this ecosystem that allows for other mobile vendors at this point to be a part uh, of the work that we're doing and be a part of the mission. So they would have, they would come into the commissary and then they'd be uh, required to work with young people coming home from the system in different capacities and then they would get a drive change affiliation. Um, so that's really exciting. We feel clear about that pathway uh, and excited to bring a, a better version of the commissary to New York City. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe, you know, if we can figure out how that works, try to replicate that in uh, another city. Unfortunately, there are way too many young people who are affected yeah. by, by the system in our country um yeah that that is the pathway you know and and hopefully we can create uh you know connections and opportunities too for people like fred to be able to be connected and potentially even come back and be a part of our bigger vision and team moving moving forward so all uh, right yeah once you uh your culinary skills are completely perfected by some of the they're best chefs. pretty good yeah uh, also <laughs> too <laughs> yeah i'm i'm I like that idea. I mean, yeah. Coming in, pushing people around. <laughs> <laughs> in the best possible way. Oh, in the most best. Like, I, when you think about being a cook, you know, you usually, let's say now. Not, yeah. We're not in the We Chef era right now. Yeah, so, yeah. Right? Most of the cooks, when they're screaming at you, they're screaming at you, like, because they see so much great in you. Like, yeah. they want you to be great. So yeah. You don't, you don't take anything personal. Yeah. Like, Definitely so many great life lessons um, to be learned in the kitchen and out um, with the organization. Okay, so thank you. I want to thank you so much. We're going to wrap it up for today. Um, Jordan and Fred, you guys were great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. For more information on Drive Change, go to drivechangenyc.org. I also want to thank our sponsors for your generous support. Uh, our show is produced with the help from Taylor Lanzette, and show music is by the talented Tim Archer. Thank you to our show engineer, Pierre Bianami and David Tadashore. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on Heritage Radio Network's website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook, and be sure to find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liu, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. I walk the